Life Church podcast with Pastor David Seabrook. Let's look at God's Word, Matthew chapter 20, beginning at verse 20. Let's hear the Word of the Lord. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him with her sons, and kneeling before him, she asked him for something. And he said to her, What do you want? She said to him, Say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left in your kingdom. Jesus answered, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? They said to him, We are able. He said to them, You will drink my cup, but to sit at my right hand and at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my Father. And when the ten heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. But Jesus called them to him and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The word of the Lord. we begin this morning, I want you to think back with me for a second, uh, to your earliest childhood dream of what you wanted to be when you grew up. Um, I ask a lot of kids this question. Maybe some of you wanted to be sort of the, the, the typical fireman, policeman, um, maybe some of you, you wanted to be like your favorite uh, superhero or movie star. Some of you wanted to be professional athletes. Uh, Maybe even something in government, like the President of the United States. I can't imagine anyone wanting to be that now. But maybe you wanted to be as a kid. What I've never found when I ask some little kid this question, I'm talking little kid, not not even middle school age yet. What I've never found is, is a kid that would say something like, you know, I just hope to land a minimum wage job and barely eke out an existence. No. Kids all dream of greatness don't they? They all dream of doing something significant, something important. They want to be great. And this doesn't change, really, uh, as we get older. Sure, reality kind of beats some of this out of us because we're like, oh, well, obviously I'm not as gifted as I thought I was when I was a kid. I'm not, I'm probably not going to be the professional athlete. I I don't have, I'm not 6'8", 250, you know, uh, but, but maybe I still, I have this desire in me to be significant, right? And, and I think we all do. We have this desire to be important, to, be, um, to have our lives count for something. Some of us would say, I really don't like the spotlight. I don't want to be um, the center of attention. But we still want to be valuable. We still, in some ways, want to be powerful. We want to be esteemed. We want our lives to matter. We want to be great. That's why we love shows like The American Idol. That's why we obsess about our, our professional athletes and and our movie stars, and we get obsessed about the details of their lives because we're drawn to greatness. 
And it certainly isn't hard to see how this works its way into politics these days. Or this, these days, uh, we 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 have these candidates who are just battling it out for a shot at greatness, and and albeit somewhat immaturely, really battling it out, trying to find this spot into greatness. And and our country as a whole, uh, we clearly have a, a very large section of our country that's saying we want America to be great again. We're sort of willing to do whatever it takes to be there. We want to be great, and this is nothing new to humanity. Uh, this is not just 2016, people. This is ever since the first two humans, Adam and Eve. I mean, what was really Adam and Eve's temptation in the garden? Uh, as, the, as the serpent, as, as Satan through the serpent comes to them with the fruit, they weren't hungry. Uh, they had lots of other fruits they could eat from. But he tempted them with power. He tempted them. He said, you could be like God. You could be really, really great. You could be so much greater than what you are right now. Fast forward a little bit. Think about the Tower of Babel. What was the issue going on there? Um, the text tells us that all these people got together and they said, let's build a tower into the heavens. Why? You know, what's the point? Seems like a lot of work for, for nothing. But the text tells us it was so they could make a name for themselves. So they could be great. They wanted to be great. And the course of human history from Babel on was just one thing after another. Humans trying to be great most of the time apart from God. The, story of, the stories of the kings, just all about trying to, people trying to be great, trying to amass greatness to themselves. And then, about 2,000 years ago, the one who is truly great comes into human history. And you think, when God becomes a man, this is going to be a show, right? I mean, when, he, when God comes into human history, he's going to be bent on making sure everyone sees his greatness, Right? You think it's going to be something like Greek mythology, the lightning bolts and the flames and, and all the thunder and stuff. But our text in Matthew here today says that wasn't it at all. In fact, when the one who was truly great came to earth, he was not bent on making his, his greatness known. He came to serve. Shockingly, he came to serve. Here we are in the midst of this series called Recentered. And we're taking the first part of 2016, and we're saying, all right, let's, let's refocus ourselves on what's really important, because we recognize that we all have this tendency as humans, don't we, to get distracted by the minor things, to make the minor things the major things in our lives, and to make the major things, the really important things, really minor things. We, we, we do that, and so we said at the beginning of this year, with all the cool things going on in Life Church, let's make sure we're focused on the right thing, which is Jesus Christ and preaching him crucified. That's what the church has always done, preaching Jesus Christ and him crucified and risen again. And so we said, let's lock eyes with Jesus. He's the author, the finisher of our faith, and let's trust him to lead us forward into this new season. Let's trust him. That's what this series is all about. And so we're looking at some of the things that he says about himself, some of his metaphors, some of his I am statements. And in this, hopefully we're getting closer to him, understanding what he wants more from our lives and loving him more in the process. And today... Like Pastor Bill said, we come to this metaphor of servant. And I think, I think this is one of our least favorite metaphors. Um, and that's because this metaphor is a little different than some of the other metaphors Jesus uses for himself. He says, I'm the bread of life. Well, we're obviously not the bread of life. He is. So we just come to him hungry. He says, I'm the living water. We're not the living water. We just come to him thirsty. 
He says, I'm the vine, you're the branches. But in this metaphor, he says, I am a servant. I came to serve. And he calls us to be like him. We love the idea of Jesus serving us. We love the idea of Jesus coming to earth. It's very, it's very satisfying for our egos, honestly, that God would come to, to earth because he loved us that much and give his own life for us. Um, you know, it kind of makes us want to write your name in the Bible every time it says you. Uh, and just, you know, everything is about you, that God came for you. He loves you. It's very satisfying. God's focused on us. But we don't like the part where he says, now you've got to be like me in this. You've got to follow me you're going to emulate me in this. You're going to become a servant too. Then it's like, whoa, hey, that's a little too far. I mean, I'm just going to be honest with you. I don't like the idea of being a servant. Uh, I mean, after all, we're Americans, right? Uh, Just think about it for a second. Americans work their whole lives, right? From the time you get your first job until this little window at the end of our life we call retirement. And I'm just being stereotypical for a second, but this is true. We work our whole lives so that at the end of our life, we can have everything in our lives done for us. You, somebody comes and mows your grass. Somebody comes and fixes your car. Somebody comes and repairs everything around your house. Then you go on vacation to these wonderful warm places, and people serve you drinks and put little baby umbrellas in them, and then they rub your back with oil. And everything is about people serving you. Everything in your life is about people serving you. That is the American dream in a nutshell. What I just told you. It's bent around getting to the place financially where others will serve you all the time. It's, it's finally getting free from the place where you ever have to do anything from anyone else. Do you see why being an American and being a Christian is kind of hard? It's hard. They rub against each other. You're constantly coming up against the opposite. None of us really like the idea of serving. We're trying our best to get away from it. And talk about being a slave. This passage says if you want to be first, you've got to become a slave. That's just repulsive to us. Americans are about freedom. In every sense of the word, we want freedom. And I think that's a good thing, but Jesus says if you want to be first, you've got to become a slave. This is hard for us. This is difficult. And yet, Jesus insists that this is how to become great. This is how to be great in his kingdom. It's counterintuitive. It's hard to wrap our minds around. And yet, he says, this is the path. If you want to be great, this is the path. So let's look at it here in Matthew. How does Jesus go about explaining this to his disciples? Well, he's clearly trying hard, and and they're not getting it. Uh, Chapter 20 begins with a parable, and it's this parable about the first shall be last and the last shall be first. And his disciples just kind of miss that. They they don't really understand. Um, And sometimes I think, Maybe I could have been a disciple because I don't get things a lot and and they don't seem that they're that much smarter than me. Uh, Then Jesus goes on and and he says, uh, he he predicts his death as they're walking up to Jerusalem. He predicts his death and resurrection. And this is the third time, by the way, in Matthew that he's told them about this. And they don't seem to get that either because then we get to our passage here and the mother of James and John makes this request, right? She comes up to him and, and kneels down and Jesus says, what do you want? And she says, paraphrasing here, I would really like for my two boys to be a big deal in your kingdom. As a matter of fact, I want them to be the two biggest guys in your kingdom, to sit on the right and the left, that's what that meant, to be the two most important people in Jesus' kingdom. And clearly she's thinking earthly kingdom here still. 
She doesn't, she doesn't understand that Jesus is actually physically going to die. Um, but on its face, when you read this, does anyone not find this funny? Uh, I, I've read this you know, passage many times before, and it just always struck me as a little weird. Maybe just because I'm reading it 2,000 years later, but um, I just think that any, if there's anything that tells you you're probably not going to be a great big deal, it's like needing to have your mom come and ask Jesus if you can, by any chance, be a great big deal. I mean, it's like, oh, guys, this is bad form. You know, I, if I were Jesus, I probably would have just stopped right there and said, come here, guys. And I just would have made fun of them a little bit, like, really? You had your mom come and talk to me for you? You're grown men. You're a couple of grown fishermen. What in the world is going on here? But this was not that out of the ordinary for that day. I mean, sometimes a mother who was influential would come and lobby on behalf of her sons for a position of power. And not only that, but this woman is not just any woman. Uh, This is Salome, the mother of James and John, the wife of Zebedee. And she was one of the women that was with Jesus in his ministry from the very beginning. One of his most faithful followers. Okay, so this woman took care of Jesus as he, as he traveled throughout his ministry in, in Galilee. And I would guess that she had some significant pull. She had a significant relationship with Jesus. And she was committed to him, followed him, and he respected her and listened to her. So, so the boys get this idea, like, we really want to be a big deal. Let's ask mom if she'll ask Jesus, you know. And all the commentators say, this really doesn't look good on James and John. But Jesus respects this woman enough to listen to her. And to take her request seriously. You know? And then he says, look, you guys, you don't know what you're asking. I picture he looks back at James and John because really he knows, all right, you guys are really the one that put your mom up to this. But you really don't know what you're asking for here. Because he says, look, if you want greatness in the way that I'm headed, in in the path that I'm headed for, it's going to have to go through suffering. I'm going to have to drink the cup. He's not talking about a cup of tea. He's talking about the cup of suffering, the same cup that he prayed to have taken from him in the Garden of Gethsemane. Saying, if you want greatness, the greatness that I'm headed for, it's going to involve suffering. Can you drink this cup? And of course, like a couple of fishermen, they just say, yeah, sure. We could definitely drink that, Jesus. They're totally naive, total bravado. They just have no idea what they're saying yes to, but they say, yep, we can certainly drink that cup. And Jesus says to him, well, you are going to taste of it. You are going to drink of it. And after they were filled with the Holy Spirit, these men became different men. Um, You know, you contrast this. James and John followed Jesus into the Garden of Gethsemane. And while Jesus is praying for this cup of suffering to pass from him, they're asleep. Not only at that point couldn't they drink the cup, they couldn't even stay awake while Jesus is praying about it, you know? But after they're filled with the Holy Spirit, after Jesus dies and rises again, they're filled with the Holy Spirit, and James became one of the first martyrs of the church. Uh, According to church history, Tertullian tells about um, John was boiled in a vat of oil, and he came out alive, even unscathed, some of the tradition says. So what do they do then? The only thing you do with a guy that doesn't die when you put him in a vat of oil, you send him off to an island. They exiled him to Patmos. But both of these men suffered greatly for Jesus. And Jesus says that. You're going to drink of my cup, but in the end, guys, these positions of greatness that you're after, they're not mine to give you. I can't do this. These are positions that my Father has to give you. Right? And, and then, you know, as Jesus is explaining this to them, I picture that this conversation happened off to the side a little bit. You know, so he's saying, guys, I can't do this. I can't give you this. 
It's kind of like if one of your kids comes to you and you have five kids like the Millers do now. You never, your kids never come to you together and ask for something. Because then they know you've got to give it to all of them and you're going to say no. They try to get you off in a corner and ask for something, right? I mean, and, and this is like if you were to take one of your kids and say, you can have shotgun the rest of your life. And you got three or four kids. This is a disaster, okay? So these two guys with their mom are off taking Jesus in the corner. Hey, can we just be the two big shots in your kingdom? We just want to be there. And then finally, the other ten figure out what's going on. And I imagine Peter had something to say about this, just knowing Peter. Uh, the rest of them get really angry. They're, they're like, what in the world are you guys doing? You're trying to pull a fast one and get Jesus to give you the two best spots? We want to be a big deal. And they start arguing about who's the greatest again. And Jesus is just like, all right, everybody sit down and shut up. I'm going to talk to you about how to be great. Ah, and, th- you know, this is not the first time Jesus has had to do this. So he sits down and he's like, all right, how to be great 101. Here we go. And he does this by contrasting greatness with the Gentiles. He says, you know how the Gentiles rule, right? And when he says Gentiles, he's referring to the Romans. And they knew all about the Romans. The Romans were tyrants. They levied heavy taxes on the people they ruled. They were abusive to them. They took advantage of them in every way possible. He says, you know how those guys rule. He says, they're tyrants. It shall not be so with you. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first must be your slave. It's incredible what Jesus says here. He says, in my kingdom, leaders don't use their positions of authority to abuse the people underneath them. It says, in my kingdom, leaders don't use the, the people under them to extract all their gifts so they can get more wealthy and more powerful. No, it's everything's flipped upside down. In my kingdom, the leaders serve. In my kingdom, the leaders use all their positions of authority and power to bless and love and care for those underneath them. This has epic meaning for the church. This is epic meaning for the church because realize Jesus is talking to the men and women who are going to start the first church. They're going to be the leaders in the first church. And so he's saying, it shall not be so among you. You're not going to form a community like the Gentiles. You're going to form a radically new community where, if this is how you'll tell it's new, the leadership serves. The rulers serve. Stanley Hauerwas points out, this new community provides an alternative to the tyranny of the world. And think of how loving this is. Okay, so everything in the world that, at that time, just everybody was seeking power. And once they got power, they just used it to keep their thumb on everybody else and just to pr- oppress everybody else and just to use those people under them for their own advantage. And then the church comes and you walk into the church and all of a sudden this person's in a position of authority and they're saying, how can I serve you? How can I bless you? How can I look after you? And it's like, whoa, what a breath of fresh air. Think of how loving this was that Jesus said, all right, in my kingdom, the people that are going to rule are going to be the greatest servants. I mean, I, I told him I wasn't going to mention them, but think about Wendell and Susan being the, the biggest leaders in the new kingdom, right? They're always looking for ways to serve you on Sunday morning. And, and you can trust them, right? You could trust them. That's one of the big things we have in America right now. We don't trust our leadership. We don't trust that they're really about serving the people. And that gets scary. But Jesus says, not in my kingdom. It shall not be so among you. Think of how loving this is. 
this is, this is a great weed-out process, right? It's a great weed-out process for leaders because he's saying, you want to be a hot dog? You want to be a big shot? You want to oppress people and use your power to, to, to take advantage of them? I'm sorry, there's no more openings. There's no more openings for leadership in my kingdom for people like that. He has no time for that. He says, the leadership in my kingdom serves. And I think, I like to dream about what the new earth is going to be like. Because you understand this life is a bit of a pre-screening for that, right? Jesus is selecting his leaders out of that, out of that heart. He's saying, all right, you love to serve. You have a huge heart to serve. You want to be just like me, and you're constantly laying your life down and putting your needs last. I want you to be a leader in my new kingdom. Think about what the new earth will be like when we're there, and everybody's flourishing because the leadership loves to serve. And Jesus has already figured that out. And so the people that are going to be a big deal in the new kingdom won't care about being a big deal because they spent all the rest of their life serving and loving Jesus and serving people in that way. I look forward to what that will be like. It's the thing I love about uh, the seminary here in town. Um, that I'm just, I'm just finishing up my degree from there, but I love their mission. It says, we train servant leaders for work in the church and the world. Servant leaders, which happens to be the only kind of leader that Jesus endorses. Servant leaders. There is no other kind to Jesus than servant leaders. So he has no room for hot shots, big, big, you know, people that want to be the presidents and the, and the, and the, you know, the people that, are, that everybody has to come to and the people that are in power and they just get to boss everybody else around. He has no room for that. He has no room for that whatsoever. So let's be clear. At Life Church, if you serve uh, in any capacity on, um, on a committee, if you serve by teaching a Bible study, if you serve by leading a life group or leading the worship team or as a pastor or as an elder or in any other capacity, you are signing up for a role of service. You're signing up to be a servant like Jesus. That's what you're signing up for. Nothing more. I pray that this would be the case at Life Church. Unfortunately, it's not the case throughout the world. It's not the case throughout even the church in America. Um, you see many churches uh, giving this, this whole passage uh, no credence because the, the pastor becomes sort of the, the, the hero or the pastor becomes sort of the um, I don't know what you call them, celebrities, really. And they fly in their private jets and they're really nice cars. And I just don't know how you get that out of this passage. And I don't, know, I don't know how you land there. Leaders are to serve in Christ's church. And that's what really creates this new kind of community. I pray that Life Church would never become uh, a church that, that steers away from this, but that we would that we would focus on this. And this is sort of the corporate application. There's also a personal application here for you as well. Um, Jesus says, you want to be great, individually even, in my kingdom, you've got to serve. Well, he's not knocking being great. Anybody realize that? Like, he's not just condemning the desire to be great, which I, I almost expected to find. That Jesus would say, oh, you want to be great? That's terrible. You should just run from that. And I think that in each of us, there's this sort of, dual desire. Part of us wants to be great and significant and important because we're prideful and selfish. And you can always recognize that because pride is always comparing itself to one another. Right? It's always wanting to be better than someone else. Pride takes no joy in having something, only in having more or better than someone else. Right? Uh, so, so there's a part of us that's, 
part of this desire to be great that's prideful and selfish, but there's a part of it that's good, I think. That's cr- that because we're created in the image of a great God, we desire greatness to give him glory and to help others flourish. So Jesus doesn't condemn it up front. He says, I'm just going to redirect you. I'm just going to redirect my disciples' desire for greatness and show them the true path to greatness. Because there is a path in Jesus' mind to greatness. It's just totally opposite of what you thought before. It's just completely different. You have to serve in order to become great. Now, I'm sure the disciples are thinking at this point, how in the world does this work? You know? How do you become greater by being a servant? How do you get higher by going lower? How do you become anything at all by being a slave? This doesn't make any sense, Jesus. We've never seen this kind of thing done before. And Jesus says, just wait. Just wait. You will. You will see this done. I'm about to show you. And that's why he goes on and says to them, listen, I'm going to be your example in this. I'm not going to call you to do something that I'm not willing to example myself. He says, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Now, when we hear him say that, it's so crystal clear to us what he means. That he's going to give his life. He's going to die and rise again from the dead to ransom us from the power of sin. But the disciples weren't thinking that. They're thinking, ransom, well, that just means the price of release. Jesus has come to release us from the power of the Romans. Awesome. We're going to finally be free from their oppression. They still didn't get it. They still didn't understand it. Jesus was coming to ransom them, to release them from a greater power. They had a greater need, and it was their sin. And in doing this, in being a ransom, releasing us from the power of sin, he served us in the ultimate way and showed us what it means to truly be great. And this is Jesus saying, fellas, here's how you're going to know. Here's how you're going to know what it means to be great. When you find yourself laying down your life for other people, now you're on the path to greatness. When you find yourself thinking more about the needs of others than about yourself, now you're tracking. Now you're on the path to greatness. See, it's backwards, Jesus says. It's all backwards. He says, actually, just do everything the opposite of what you would normally do. That, that, could, that could really get you in the right spot here. Because, see, he says, the great people in my kingdom, they have towels on their arms. The great people in my kingdom, they wash feet. They touch lepers. They heal the sick. They clothe the naked. They feed the hungry. That's what the great people in my kingdom do, Jesus is saying. He says, you have to change the way you think about what it means to be great. I think it's only fitting that right after this passage, what does Jesus do? He encounters two blind men coming out of Jericho. They're crying out to him, two blind beggars. In that culture, they absolutely had nothing. They could do nothing to to advance themselves. No social security is going to take care of them. They just had to beg. And they're calling out to him, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on us. And Jesus got a lot on his mind. He's headed to Jerusalem for a brutal beating death and, and his burial. He's got a lot on his mind. He could have very easily said, I just don't have time. But Jesus always practiced what he preached. I love that about Jesus. He always practiced what he preached. He stopped. He served. He healed them. And he gave his his disciples a real-life example of what it means to be great. So what does this metaphor mean for you today? 
It's simple enough, isn't it? It's not rocket science here. You already knew this before. If, if you've been following Jesus for any length of time that we're called to serve. But this message <laughs> preaches a lot easier than it lives. I've been wrestling with this all week because it's easy to get up and preach about serving. But when it comes down to it, taking the towel and, and humbling yourself, that's not easy. That's hard. That's counterintuitive. Maybe some of you are here today, you've been seeking greatness and and a number of different ways and Jesus is not knocking it. He's not saying, he's not dogging you for wanting to be great. He's just trying to redirect all of your attempts at getting it. Saying, you're going about it in the wrong way. You're trying just like the world's trying. He just wants to redirect you. It's likely that many of us have have gone about it in the wrong ways because our culture sort of of funnels us into that. Uh, I think the American culture has become so cutthroat in getting to the top that people would just betray everything that they are, everything that they believe, to, to climb the ladder, to land that job, to, to get one up on everybody else. That's just the normal way. Even lie, cheat, do whatever you got to do to get to the top, to become that thing that you want to be. Jesus is saying, no, 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 no. There is another way. And it's through serving. It's through serving. That's how you become Great. So let's ask the questions and play out the scenarios. What would it be like if at your job, instead of having to be better than everyone else, you just started looking for ways to serve wherever possible? What would that, what, what would that do to the environment at your work? People just start to, what's going on with him? What's going on with her? They're always looking to just serve and bless. You know, what if you as a boss, and you have such an opportunity if you're, if you're the owner of a company, what if you as, a, as the owner of a company said, you know what? I'm not going to just use my employees to leverage the highest profit margins for myself. (laughs) I'm not just going to pay them peanuts just so I can get richer and richer. But I'm going to pay them a really good wage, and I'm going to look at how I can serve and bless and cause their lives to flourish because I'm a Christian. What would that do? Everybody would want to work for you. You get the best employees ever. Because your work environment is different. It's a place where leadership serves. What if you on your, on your campus or on your sports team or, or in your circle of friends stopped thinking about yourself so much for a minute and started looking to the needs of others? You just started praying about it and just saying, Lord, show me where other people are needing. Just get my eyes off myself for a little while. Do you realize how hard that is? Just to, just to pull your eyes up off the center of yourself for a little bit so that you can start thinking about others. There's a lot of life in that. There's a lot of joy in that. Jesus promises there's life when you do this, but it's not easy to do. What if instead of trying to keep up with the Joneses next door, you just started looking to serve and bless the Joneses? This could have some really cool ramifications for our lives and for our communities. But what about us as a church, too? I mean, as a church, we have to evaluate. Do, do we go about seeking greatness in a world-centered way or in a Jesus-centered way? Have we accepted Jesus' heart for us in this community? And we, have we said, you bet, we'll take our identity as servants. We'll take our position as, as the, the people that will do anything for this community. We'll, we'll wash feet. We'll do whatever, right? We'll work with whoever. Have we, have we done that? Have we embraced that? And in doing so, have we become a faithful presence of Christ in this community? I don't know if we have. I don't know if we have. 
Maybe we're just about making a name for ourselves still. You know, churches do that too, by the way. Just because we say we follow Jesus doesn't mean churches are not about making a name for themselves. They get caught up in it. And especially when they get blessed and they grow, churches can become about making a name for themselves. Um, Israel did not do well with the Lord's blessing. You realize that, right? They did way better with a two-by-four to the head than, than with the Lord's blessing. They just always seem to lead them into trouble. And I think a lot of times the church is that way too. If we don't adamantly focus ourselves on what Jesus told us to do, we will end up being about becoming a big shot church, becoming a big deal, making a name for ourselves. We'll end up doing the opposite of what Jesus told us to do. Friends, may it never be so. I know this is tough. Like I said, this preach is a lot easier than it lives, and I'm right there with you. We, as Life Church, we certainly don't do this perfectly. As leadership, we do not, we do not uh, resemble Jesus perfectly at all. We're far from it, but we are working towards this. And I tell you what, as, as difficult as this is, it's difficult, it's backwards, it's counterintuitive. Nobody likes to serve. Nobody likes to die and give up their life. But that's what makes it so special when it's put on display. That's what makes it so beautiful because people rarely see this. And when they see this, what they're, what they're seeing is they're getting a glimpse of Christ himself, the God who came to serve. And that, my friends, that's what we're after. We're after showing people who Jesus really is, the God who served. We're, at, we're after introducing them to him, this great God, this king, who also humbled himself and came to serve. Friends, my prayer is for us that we truly would be a great church filled with great followers of Jesus. And we'd be great, not because of the world's standards, but because we finally understood in Jesus' kingdom to be great means you serve. Amen? Let me, let me close with a benediction from the words of Paul. As I believe he would say to Life Church in Philippians 2, 3 through 9, Life Church, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which is also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of man. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Like Pastor Dave said, this Jesus took on the form of humanity. He came and he suffered. Um, he lived a life like what we live, where we have pain and we experience heartache and we see injustice. And as Pastor Dave said, this Jesus was obedient to death on the cross. But the story doesn't end there, because if the story ended there, we wouldn't know what to do with that. That doesn't have good news in it, but the story of Jesus is full of good news. This Jesus, after dying and being buried, rose again three days later and is risen, and he's promised to come back. This Jesus is going to return. He's going to rule as king over the earth, 
and he's going to rule in this way that he calls us to serve. He's going to be a God who serves us, a God who loves us, a God who restores everything. And so that's the good news for us today. If this is the first time you've heard this, um, I'm going to invite the prayer team up, and you can come up and talk with them. You can pray with them um, if you want to know more about this Jesus or if you just have any other prayer needs or concerns. So as I close, um, I'll invite them to come up. And then if you would just leave quietly um, so that whoever stays can concentrate while they're praying or being prayed for, that'd be great. So please join me in prayer. God, we thank you that you are a God who serves, that you are a God who models service to us, that you don't call us to do something that you're not willing to do yourself. And so we thank you that you are a good God. We thank you, Jesus, for the way that you are coming back. We thank you for that promise and ask that you would help us to cling to that, that we would understand what it means that you are a God who's alive and who loves us and is giving us eternal life. And so we thank you for who you are. We thank you for all that you've done and ask that you would empower us to live lives of service this week and until you return. In Jesus' name, amen.